So good to have you here this morning. Thank you for being, um, being here. Thank you for celebrating with us the goodness, the glory of Christ this morning. Um, we're going to continue to walk through the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, looking at the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us, then we'll jump into that. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness towards us, God, your faithfulness towards us, Lord, your majesty, God, your grace that we don't deserve, that we've not earned, that we've not worked for, that you have freely given to us. And I pray, God, that this morning we would stand in that grace. God, you'd help us to understand your word. You'd help us to see what you would have for us this morning. At Jesus, you would be magnified. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen those videos on the internet of basically torturing little kids with candy that they're not allowed to eat? These, these experiments that they have where they come into a room and they place a plate of candy before a kid and they talk up how great the candy is. It's amazing candy. It's your favorite candy. You would love to have this candy, but under no circumstances are you allowed to eat this candy. And then sit the plate in front of them, get a fake phone call, leave the room, and then watch in cameras to see how long it takes for those kids to eat that candy. Some of them, instantaneous. Like as soon as that person is out of the room, all of it is gone. They have scarfed it down, and you see the guilt over their face. Oh, over their face. Oh my goodness, what have I just done? That adult is coming back, and the very thing they told me not to do, I have just done. You also see at times kids are just tortured over it just staring at it, just inside of themselves. Some of them go in and sniff it, get as close as they can, take a little bite of it, kind of back up again, are fighting with everything in them to not do that. When I was a little kid, and even now, this may surprise you, maybe I've shared this with you before, I am a pyromaniac. So hi, my name is Andy, and I am a pyromaniac. So I'm just kind of, here's my confession to you. I love fire. It is amazing. It is beautiful. It is powerful. I could stare at it all day. I start it whenever I can. All of those kinds of things. So if I come over to your house, hide the matches because I will probably light a candle or something at your house. I get it honest. My mom is the same way. My sons are carrying on. I think it's hereditary. We love fire. I remember one time when I was growing up, um, my, um, I was in the 80s and my, both my grandparents smoked. It was the 80s everybody's grandparents smoked, right? In the 80s, right? You can give me an amen to that, um, for that. And in one, of the, one of the times, it was very clear in my grandmother's house, I was never ever to touch her lighter. Never ever. And she would tell me that repeatedly, never ever touch my lighter. And every time she said it, I want to touch the lighter. One time she steps outside and leaves her pack of cigarettes and her lighter on the kitchen table. And to my little heart, it was clearly an invitation from my grandmother to light the lighter. She had left the room. She had went outside. She had left it in plain sight. It's clear for her the rules had somehow changed in this moment. I am supposed to light this lighter. And of course, what do I do instantaneously when my grandmother is outside and I can see she is at a safe distance outside the window? I light the lighter. And it's fun. Sorry, kids. Sorry, parents. It's fun. It's lighter. It's hot. It can burn things. It's fun. So don't do it, kids, though but it's fun. Don't do it, though. Don't do it. So I see this. I light the lighter. I think I get away with it. My grandma comes back in the house, instantly smells the lighter that has been lit, 
comes at me, did you do the thing that I told you not to do? No, grandma, of course not. Why would I do a thing like that? She knew, I knew, we all knew everybody was lying in this situation. The temptation was very real to me. And as a little boy in that situation, I was doomed to fail. I didn't have any power in me. The desire was too great. The desire for the fire, the desire to break the rules was too great in my heart to say no to this very obvious temptation lying in front of me. And what I want to share with us this morning as we look in Matthew chapter 4 is we're stepping into the temptation of Jesus, that we're seeing the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into a time where the devil steps in and tries to thwart the plan of God, tries to tempt Jesus to be disobedient to his Father, to, to give up what he had come to earth to do. And what I love about this passage of Scripture and kind of what we'll talk about this morning um, is seeing Jesus being successful for us, having victory for us, where we in and of our own strength are doomed to light our grandmother's lighter. Jesus says no and helps us to do the same. Let's read with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses in Matthew chapter 4. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. We'll stop there real quick. The then there is, remember from last week, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John. This is an amazing scene that is there. The Father comes and this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. So this is happening. And then we open up immediately in chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What I want to share with you this morning, if you see on your notes, kind of a little summary paragraph there on the top of your notes, is that the enemy is real. Temptation is real, but so is victory in Jesus. Because Jesus fought for our obedience and won, we too can fight and win. Because Jesus trusted his Father's promises in times of testing, we too can trust our Father's promises in times of testing. In Christ— we can experience the same victory through temptation that Jesus experienced. I'll share with you three things this morning about temptation. And as we walk through this passage of Scripture together, we're going to look at the timing of temptation. We're going to look at the type of temptation. And finally this morning, we'll look at the triumph over temptation. First, let's look at the timing of temptation. Look with me again in verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness— be, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And we see the very stark difference between the end of chapter 3 
in the beginning of chapter 4, don't we? If you remember from last week, where was the scene set? On the lush shores of the Jordan River. Where is, scene, where is the scene set in chapter 4? In the barren wilderness alone. And Mark even tells us with wild animals in the barren wilderness alone. We see in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus is surrounded by crowds. Tons and tons of people are coming and to be baptized and to, to watch what was going on. It was kind of a, a big celebration in a lot of ways, a big to-do in a lot of ways. Where is he in chapter 4? Alone. No one around. We see at the end of chapter 3 that Jesus is anointed by the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. In chapter 4, Jesus is attacked by Satan. Very stark difference. We see in the end of chapter 3, Jesus hears the words of the Father. In chapter 4, Satan are the words that he hears being whispered into his ear. This incredible stark difference from the highest of highs in chapter 3, from a glorious picture of coming forward and his ministry being made known and the Father speaking from heaven and the Holy Spirit descending down to the lowest of lows, of being weak and tired, and alone, and fasting for 40 days. And Matthew inserts this phrase, which is kind of a duh phrase, but he went 40 days and nights without eating, and he was hungry to show us Jesus in its humanity. He wasn't leaning into his deity where he didn't need to eat. He was fully human, hungry after 40 days, tired after 40 days, alone after 40 days. The stark difference between the high highs of chapter 3 and the low lows of chapter 4. What we see in this passage of Scripture, what I think is true in all of our lives, is that oftentimes Satan attacks and temptation comes when we are most vulnerable. See, Jesus was fasting and hungry. He was alone. He was protecting himself from the wild animals. He was desperately hungry after the end of the 40 days. I can only imagine in this moment what Jesus was feeling physically, emotionally, mentally in this moment. And Satan feels like in this moment, this is my time to attack. This is it. This is when Jesus, the God-man, is at his weakest in this moment. But unbeknownst to, Jesus, or unbeknownst to Satan, this is actually when Jesus was one of his strongest points. He had just spent 40 days alone with his father. There is nothing that can strengthen Jesus more than spending 40 days alone with his father. The question for us as we look in Jesus and seeing what seems to be a very vulnerable time for him, what are those times for us? When are we most vulnerable to Satan's attacks? When are we most vulnerable for God to test us? When we're tired? when we're sick, when we're hurt, when we're emotional, when circumstances are changing in our lives, when we kind of take our eyes off the steering wheel, if we will, for a moment, and we think that everything is okay. It's in that moment that Satan often attacks. My brother and his family just went out west to see the Grand Canyon, and they rented a self-driving car um, for the fun of it while they were out there. I have no desire ever to drive a self-driving car, but they did. It was one of those moments where they were driving this car, and my brother thought, well, this is a self-driving car. I'm going to take my hands off the wheel and let the car do what it wants to do. And the car instantly recognized that and said, please put your hands back on the wheel. So in that moment, my brother thought, everything's cool. Everything's safe. Everything's fine. The car knew better for whatever reason and said, don't do that right now. 
Now is not the time to take your eyes off the road, to take your, we- your hands off of the wheel. But those are times in our own lives where Satan comes and attacks, where we feel like everything's fine. Everything is just moving along as it's supposed to be. We kind of pay, don't pay attention to those things. And in those moments, Satan often comes in and tempts us just as he did to Jesus. In those moments, God often tests us to test our faith in those moments to prove that our faith is genuine. We see it throughout Scripture, don't we? In the creation, at the very beginning, the first story that we ever come in contact with, Adam is created, Eve is created, they are walking with God, there's intimacy and fellowship with God, there's no greater closeness to God in this moment. When does Satan come? In that exact moment, to whisper in Adam's ear, did God really say you're supposed to live like this and act like this in this exact moment? When Job, everything was going well for him. He had a great family, had a great wealth, had everything that seemed to be going well for him. In that moment, God said to Satan, consider Job. Let's go see what his faith is like in this particular moment. The nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, seeing the very power of God, God on display, his glory on display, putting walls of water around them for them to cross the Red Sea and almost instantaneously began to complain. And they said, God has abandoned us. Let's melt our gold and make a cow out of it and worship that. Tempted and tested in that moment. Elijah raining fire onto the prophets of Baal. And almost instantaneously running for his life and wishing he was dead. We see in these moments, we see these things in our lives as well, in our highest of highs, when we think like things are going well, that in those moments Satan comes and says, I want to tempt you. I want to prove that your faith is wrong. I want to prove that this is all fake, that this is all a lie, that your God is not real. God says, I want to test you to make sure that your faith is real in these moments. We see something radically different about Jesus, don't we? Adam failed. Israel failed. Job, in many ways, didn't trust the Lord. Elijah failed over and over again. Failure, failure, failure. But what does Jesus do from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows? He obeyed perfectly. Walked through the temptation perfectly without sin. Why does it often work like this for us? Why do we often go so quickly from everything going right to feel like everything is going wrong, from ease and success and mountaintop experiences to hardship and difficulty and walking in the wilderness? What's God doing in these times? I know we're tempted in these moments to ask God, do you even care about us? I can picture myself at times in my life walking alone in the wilderness, fighting off the beasts, looking to the Father and say, did you forget about me out here? Did you forget that I I trusted you? Did you forget what you said about me? Is God just simply cruel? Is it just a game to him? I think we feel like that at times, don't we? When we're going through testing, when we're going through temptation, that God is just this giant in the sky, and we're just an ant on an anthill, and God has a great time crushing anthills, looking for ways to disrupt, looking for ways to crush. And we feel like that about God sometimes, don't we? This is not who God is. This is not what he's doing to us. Satan wants to destroy us in our temptation, and we'll look for the timing when it's right to be able to do that. God wants to test us to prove that our faith is genuine. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, In this rejo- you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why in those moments do we go through hardships and difficulties? 
One, because Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to make you look foolish. But on the flip side of that, and on a more powerful side of that, and a truer side of that, God wants to prove that your faith is genuine, that he's real, that your hope is not misplaced, that what he has asked you to do is good and right and powerful. The timing of this we see in our lives when we're most vulnerable, we need to watch for what God is doing when Satan might tempt in and try to destroy us. We see it at the end of this chapter in verse 11, or at the end of this section in verse 11. After all of this, Jesus says to Satan, be gone. And in verse 11, it says, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It feels like in this moment, at least in Matthew, Jesus is one, forever one. Be gone, Satan. Satan leaves. Angels come, and we see that everything is great. Victory is won. Satan won't bother Jesus anymore. Luke doesn't give us that option. In Luke's recollection, when Luke's recalling of this, Luke says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So in that moment, Satan did exactly what Jesus told him to do, but was still prowling, looking for a way to destroy this Jesus. I say that to us as a warning to us. There will be times where you will see victory. There will be times when the power of Jesus, you say, be gone, Satan, and he leaves you alone. He departs from you. The temptation goes away. The struggle goes away. The trial goes away. But he has not yet gone away. The temptation may still go on. The testing may still go on. Not only at our highest and our lowest times, but ongoing. We are fighting a battle for victory in Christ. It's not a one-off. It's not a one victory and I can let my guard down. It is we are constantly in battle. William Barclay says this about Christian warfare. He says, there is no release from Christian warfare. We fight from beginning to end. And this is the truth for us as those who are in Christ. Until the day Christ comes back or calls us home, we fight for obedience. We fight to say yes to Jesus and no to the evil one. We continue to be fight, to fight because our devil is surrounding us. He's a roaring lion seeking who someone to devour. So the timing of this, I don't want to scare you, but I want us to give us a reality check to this. In our most vulnerable times, Satan will come and tempt us. Satan will want to destroy you. All of the time, Satan wants to destroy you and wants to, de- wants to destruct everything that God has built up. So we must be on guard. We must be watchful for what God is doing. But the testing that we're walking through, the timing of the testing, I want to be very clear here, is under the sovereign control of God. Satan is not in charge. He is not the one who is leading this. He is not the one who has been given free reign in this. What does the chapter open up with? The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Who is controlling Jesus' location? The Spirit of God. Who is controlling the circumstances of Jesus? The Spirit of God. Who is controlling Jesus' responses to everything Satan throws at him? The Spirit of God. God is in sovereign control over every timing, every vulnerable moment of of yours, every doubt of yours, every lack of faith of yours, every crushing moment of yours. God is in control of all of it. And Satan cannot do anything in your life that God has not allowed to happen that God is not powerfully over in that moment. So first we see the timing of this temptation. Be aware, be watchful, 
but know there is a purpose in all that God is doing. Secondly, we see the type of temptation, the type of temptation that Jesus is walking through. I want to be very clear here about this kind of two words. You may have heard me switching back and forth between two words, and that's intentional. Satan tempts us. God tests us. God's purpose in these moments, God's purpose in these testings is to refine us, not destroy us. Satan tempts us to destroy us, not to refine us. Satan's intentions are evil to destroy us. God's intentions and his testings are good and right to build us up. God tests us to prove that our faith is real. Satan tempts us to prove that our faith is futile, that it's misplaced, that it's not where it's supposed to be. And so we see the type of testing and tempting. I think there's multiple things happening in this that yes, Satan is tempting. Yes, Satan is trying to destroy Jesus in this moment. But also this is a test for Jesus. This is a way for Jesus to show that he's trusting his father. That he has, he has rightfully placed his hope in the father. He is rightfully obeying what the, what the father has told him to do. And we see the way that these tests, we see in, in verse 3, what Satan comes to Jesus with. And he says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What is the type of temptation in this? The type of temptation is that Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to take the temporary over the eternal. To place a greater value on what the world offers than what his father offers. To say, I want the here and now, now, and not wait for the later, later. What we see in this is, it a, is an amazing tactic, a wise tactic, if you're evil, to come to Jesus. I can only imagine in this moment, Jesus' physical weakness, his physical tiredness. He was getting to the point of feeling hungry. To see in this moment, to almost imagine Jesus' stomach grumbling and cramping. And for Satan in that moment to say, seriously, man, pick up that rock. And by the time it gets to your mouth, it'll be a delicious piece of bread. And you'll be fine. The grumblings will go away. The pain will go away. The strength will be restored. Everything will be fine. And in that moment, the evil one wants to tempt Jesus to, to switch what God is giving. To not trust that what God has for him is enough. The type of this temptation is the questions that we ask oftentimes. Is God really giving me enough? Is he really sustaining me? Does he really satisfy me? Is there something in this world that is better satisfying than what God desires to give to me? And we are tempted often, every day, to believe the lie that there's something in the world that is better for us than what God has for us. That the immediate is better than the waiting. And it tempts us to focus on the symptoms and ignore the disease right? We are a, a culture that loves to ignore the disease, that loves to ignore the root problems of what's really going on. We love to fix symptoms, don't we? We love to fix the things that are on the surface, the things that are showing themselves in our lives. We love that. We don't like the hard work that it takes to figure out what's actually going on deep down at the root of the problem. The symptom was on the outside, I'm hungry. What's an easy way to fix that? 
Jesus in his powerful deity and the power of the Spirit to snap his fingers and to make stones into bread. But what's the root of the problem there is that in so doing, Jesus would say, I don't trust my dad. I don't trust that his word is enough for me, that I have to take it into my own hands. And aren't we all tempted with that on a regular basis? Is that we face almost every day in our lives is the evil one whispering on your, on a, in our ears, he's not giving you enough. He's holding back from you. There's something better that he's not giving to you. Exchange this for that. We see in verses five and six, Satan's not done. He says, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is again the evilness of Satan. Jesus' first response to Satan's temptation was to quote the word of God. What does Satan do in his second temptation? He quotes the word of God. But what does he do? He twists it, and he actively removes words. He actively removes context. He actively removes the purpose of what that scripture was written for. What Satan is attempting Jesus or tempting Jesus to do in this moment is to impose his will over the Father's will. It's to tempt Jesus to say, what I want as Jesus is more important than what my Father wants. We have to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. We have to trust that God is not, test, not trying to tempt us. We have to trust and listen and obey. Are we willing to submit our lives to Christ? Are we willing to obey his plans for us? Are we willing to make God um, to, to, to do what he's asking us to do? Or do we run towards our plans and say, God, you got to fix this along the way? Are we, and oftentimes in our lives, are we flinging ourselves off of buildings and saying, God, catch me? I think many of us in our lives are planning our lives in such a way as I'm just going to run off this cliff and pray that God catches me on the end. We're imposing our own will over God's that what God, what I want for my life, what I desire for my life is way more important than what God wants for my, for my life. And I will twist and manipulate him to impose my will over his. Jesus says no to this. He submits to his father's will. He doesn't fling himself off and trust that God is going to just change the plan in that moment. We see in verses 8 and 9, it says, Again, the devil devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. What does Satan desire more than anything else? The glory of God for himself. He wants to be worshipped more than anything else. He wants us to bow down to him, bow down to him more than anything else. He wants us to put our trust in him more than anything else. What does he want for our lives? For me to steal the glory of God for myself, which is ultimately stealing the glory of God for Satan himself. And so we see in this that Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to say, worship me, give me glory. I'll give you all this stuff. You don't have to go through the hard stuff. This is what Satan was ultimately saying. I know you're here to die. I know that you know what's ahead of you, that you're looking to the cross. Your, your face is being set towards Jerusalem every day, that you know that this story ends with your crucifixion. Satan comes to him and says, I can give you all of that right now. You don't have to die. You don't have to be rejected. 
You don't have to be crucified. You don't have to go through the pain. You don't have to do any of those things. And I'll give you glory right here, right now. Want to exchange the good for the better. Want to exchange short-term for long-term. And the question for us is, am I seeking my own glory? Am I seeking my own reputation? Am I seeking for me to be lifted up? Am I seeking for people to praise me? Am I seeking to short-circuit the process that God has for me for my sanctification and my growth? And the, question to, the answer to all of those questions is yes. Almost every day, I am fighting that battle. Almost every day, I go through something hard and say, I don't want to go through this hard thing. I want something short now to not have to go through the pain of what is waiting for me on the other side. Am I willing to sacrifice the short term for the eternal? Is getting what I want now more important than getting what God wants for me both now and later? What am I ultimately worshiping? Am I worshiping myself? Am I worshiping my stuff? Am I worshiping my circumstances? Let me be very, very blunt this morning. You are worshiping Satan. You are leaning in to the exact temptation when you say, God, I don't want your glory, I want my own. That is the epitome of evil. And we see in these types of temptation that there is a a generality in temptations that is universal for all of us. 1 Corinthians 10 says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But we also see in the evilness of Satan, there are also specific things to you things he knows about you, ways he's tempting you, ways that he knows might trip you up. And so the nature of our testing, the the type of our testing, is both common and both unique to us. But what do we do with all of this? What do we do with the reality? I know it seems pretty heavy to come to you and say, you are always going to be tempting. There is an enemy looking to destroy you around every corner. It is roaring. He is seeking you. He wants to destroy you. It comes in all shapes and sizes. He's going to tempt you in all kinds of different ways. That's not a really gospel-filled, glorifying, good news, good feeling kind of message, is it? But it's real because Jesus went through all of that. But I'm thankful to God that the gospel is real, that he gives us a triumph over temptation. Though it is real, though it is regular, though it is unique to you at times, there is an opportunity for you to say, no, be gone, Satan. I will not give in to you in this moment. How do we triumph over temptation? That's our last point, number three. How do we triumph over temptation? Well, we have to look at this passage and ask the question, how did Jesus do it? And let's follow what Jesus did, and maybe we can have some success in that. How did Jesus say no to Satan's temptation? identity-anchored, spirit-led, word-driven obedience to the Father. Anchored in his identity of what just happened in chapter 3. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus says, this is who I am. Led by the Spirit. Where the Spirit says, go, Jesus went. Where the Spirit says, stop, Jesus stopped. Word-driven obedience. The word of God, the promises of God were down into Jesus' heart. One, because he gave them. Those were his words. Those were his promises. And he brought them out time and time again to battle temptation. Jesus, or the Father said to Jesus, this is my beloved Son, led by the Spirit, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus believed the promises of God. He trusted in the power of of, of, of the Spirit to overcome temptation. Jesus used the word of God as an anchor 
to firmly place him as a foundation in his testing. He didn't twist it to fit his narrative. He didn't twist it to fit his own desires. He didn't twist it to justify any kind of disobedience. He submitted to it time and time again because he trusted that his father was good and powerful and right. In verse 4, Jesus responded to changing stone into bread is by saying, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Satan tempted him to throw himself off the temple, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When Satan tempted him again to say, bow down to me and I'll give you all of these earthly kingdoms, he said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus, led by the Spirit, applied the promises of the Father. He knew the Word. He meditated the Word. He spoke the Word. He rested in the Word. He is the Word. It is through Jesus that we overcome temptation. And how does Jesus help us? Let me be very clear about this because this, this could feel crushing. This could feel legalistic. This could feel like I'm just giving you a list of things to do. How does Jesus help us? It's more than merely memorizing Bible verses. They're not some magical spell that if we say the right words out loud, Satan has to respond because we said the magical formula. It is not that. We need those promises to seek down deep inside of us to change us. Here's the great thing about Jesus and his word. Jesus takes the promises of the Father, and he, by his power, applies them to our hearts. He does that. He does the work. He makes them look right to us. He opens our eyes to them. He gives us obedience in that. I don't have to cling on and wrench my hands in the Word of God and over and over again say, do this, do this, do this in my own power. I simply say, Jesus, apply your obedience to my heart. And he says, I am happy to do it because this is what I do. How does Jesus help us? He shares his story. How did Matthew learn about the story? How did Mark learn about the story? How did Luke learn about the story? When Jesus came out of the wilderness, he said, hey, boys, sit down. I got a story to tell you. And there's like, where have you been for the last month and a half? It's going to be a good one. Spirit led me out into the wilderness. Satan showed up. I said no to all of those things. The Father was glorified. I want to share this with you so you too can be obedient in the middle of temptation. He fights to the very end. He fights to the very end. He draws us in. He lives through us. He guarantees victory. I want to be very clear about this this morning too. In your temptation, Jesus does not run from you in your temptation. Jesus draws closer. When you are at your weakest, Christ is closest. When you are at your greatest temptation, Jesus draws you in in those moments. He is not repelled by your temptation. He is drawn closer by it. He helps us in our deepest need of salvation, and he helps us in our day-to-day. Colossians 2 gives us this great passage. I won't read it now, but tells us that what Jesus does ultimately is he disarms Satan. He takes the power away from him. The cross, the resurrection, gives Satan no more power in our lives. This is the ultimate begone Satan. The ultimate begone Satan was not in the wilderness. It was in the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead. You have no power over us anymore. Hebrews tells us that Jesus walked through temptation, was obedient in temptation, did not sin in temptation, can sympathize with us in our temptation. But again, in closing, I want to say very clearly that Jesus is not merely an example for us. 
He doesn't simply provide us a teaching plan or a path or a bunch of cliff's notes or just kind of toss us a, an owner's manual and then pushes out of us out of the wilderness and says, figure it out. I did it. Now you do it. It's not what Jesus does for us. Jesus doesn't leave us in the wilderness to fight alone. He is with us fighting our battle for us. Jesus does for us what no one else could. Jesus is the better and truer Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is the better and truer Job. Where Job doubted, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is the better and truer Israel. Where Israel complained and gave in to temptation, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is the better and truer Elijah, where he's coming from the mountaintop and continues to run to the Father. Jesus, through his Spirit, lives in us and through us to give us everything we need to say yes to him and no to sin, to give us everything we need to rightly divide the word of God, to give us everything we need to wait for the glory that is to come, to give us everything we need to keep fighting the good fight of the faith until he brings us home where all striving and fighting and temptation and testing will cease. Jesus is with you in your grandma's kitchen. In those moments where you feel it is inevitable for me to give in to this. In those moments when you're at your weakest, in those moments when you're at your most vulnerable, in those moments where you feel like you can't do anything but give into this, Jesus is with you in your grandma's kitchen. He is with you when you feel alone fighting the beasts in the wilderness. He is with you and not merely beside you, cheering you on, in you, fighting for you, in you, giving you strength, in you, giving you everything you need, in temptation, Our calling, our obedience is to say, Jesus, do it for me. I can't do it in my own strength. I can't say no alone. I have lived a life of saying yes to Satan over and over and over again. Jesus, you must do this for me and through me to the glory of God. Jesus is with us, walking through the temptation, walking through the testing, It's not about more rules. It's not about more willpower. It's not about tricks. It's not about any of those things. It's about a better promise. It's about better power. It's about Jesus. Let's pray this morning. God, we come to you. Jesus, we thank you that it is about you, that you have given us victory, that you are the ones who have have worked through us, that you are the one who walked through temptation in your most vulnerable moment saying no to Satan, fulfilling your calling, showing that your, your, your faith, showing that your trust in your Father was real, was not misplaced. That all of the ways that you were tempted, you, you did not give in to those. You showed us the way. You are the way for us. Jesus, help us not to fight the battle alone, not to walk through temptation alone, not to walk through testing alone, but to know that you are with us, to know that what is to come is far more glorious than anything that we can give up, than anything that we think this world has for us, that trusting the, the will of the Father is, of you, God, is far more important than imposing our own will on you. Jesus, thank you that you have been victorious. Thank you that you are the one who has given us the victory, not only now, but forevermore. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.